Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's episode of Speak Up. Today's conversation is all about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. ADHD is having a moment right now, thanks in part to TikTok, a number of high-profile people disclosing their own ADHD diagnosis, and many parents seeing firsthand the challenges their child was having with sustained attention, organisation and regulation while supporting off-site learning. ADHD has historically been seen as the domain of paediatricians, psychiatrists and our psychology colleagues, but in recent years the value of speech pathology in this space has grown in awareness which is great to see. So much so that ADHD was rated very highly in our recent Speech Pathology Australia Professional Education Annual Survey as a clinical practice area members were wanting to learn more about and develop their clinical skills in. So it is absolutely fantastic to be chatting through all things ADHD today with two guests, Lani Lamers and Jen Ward. Lani is a psychologist who is currently undertaking her educational and developmental psychology registration from Mullum Road Psychology Clinic in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Thank you so much for being here, Lani. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. And Jen is a senior speech pathologist, animal assisted therapist and director of the Speech Express, a private practice also in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Hi and welcome, Jen. Thanks, Annika. I feel really excited to be chatting on this topic today as a speech pathologist. Me too. We have an absolute truckload to cover today. ADHD is such a broad topic and there's so, so much that we can chat through. But I'm going to start with you, Lani, if I can. I'm just wondering if you can give everybody a bit of an overview as to what ADHD actually is and what the subtypes of ADHD are. Sure. So ADHD is a neurodevelopmental difference in the way the brain develops and falls under the umbrella of neurodivergence. ADHDers have a pattern of inattentive and or hyperactive and impulsive traits that interfere with their functioning or development. So as you said, there's different types of ADHD. Uh, There's three types. So firstly, ADHD predominantly inattentive type, which was formerly known as ADD or attention deficit disorder. From the outside, inattention presents as difficulties with sustained attention, challenges remembering and following instructions, becoming distracted by internal or external stimuli or maybe being quite forgetful for everyday items. The second type of ADHD is predominantly hyperactive and impulsive presentation. Hyperactivity is marked by an increase in motor activity, so that could be like fidgeting, moving around in situations that is unexpected, um, or they might be very, very talkative. And then there's impulsivity, which is described as hasty actions, where there's minimal to no thought before acting. So finally, the third type is the combined presentation. So it's essentially 
both together where they have inattentive, hyperactive and impulsive traits. And Lani, what are the prevalence rates of each of those subtypes? Sure. So in general, most research actually lumps it all together. So for ADHD overall, there's approximately 7% in children, but this rate really varies depending on the country, gender and age. Um, In adults, cross-nationally, it's estimated about 2.5% for ADHDers. I think traditionally, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there has been this kind of belief that girls perhaps present with the inattentive type of ADHD and boys present with the hyperactive type of ADHD. I'm just wondering whether you can comment on that and whether that's actually um, an accurate thing to say or not. Yeah, that's generally quite accurate in research. Um, So prevalence rates for um, boys, males to females, is about two to one. Um, in children, but in adults, it's about six to one male to female. So there's a really large difference there. But in general, research does show that females are more likely to present with those inattentive features than males. Mm. There's also a, a belief that ADHD is underdiagnosed. Is that something that you would agree with? Yes, definitely, particularly in women. Um, And I think that really shows with those prevalence rates in the fact that it's now two to one male to female in children, Mm. but it's six to one male to female in adults. So I think that really shows that females have been underdiagnosed for quite a long time. And it's really now coming out in adulthood that they're seeing these traits in themselves and the demands of life are exceeding what their capacity is. So, yeah, we're seeing a rise in diagnosis. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think that is, though? Is that just that society expects women and girls to be a particular way or why do you think that is? Yeah, I agree. I think there's societal expectations. Um, I think women women are pleasers and we like to help those around us. And so we're more likely to mask kind of traits to fit in. I think masking really mm. comes into it here. Um, mm. And I think with women generally showing more inattentive traits, that's really difficult to see from the outside Um, that can be really hidden under the surface for a very long time and might not come out until maybe high school, late high school or university Mm. years. Mm, Absolutely. Now, my understanding of the assessment process for ADHD is that it's a little haphazard. It's different from one person to the next. It's quite confusing for families. Is there an actual gold standard process for assessment of ADHD, Lani? Yes. So, I mean, the assessment process can really range from a self-diagnosis, a self-assessment, which is totally valid. Um, But there is a gold standard if you want a comprehensive assessment with recommendations that are going to help that individual person. What we would normally suggest is that they come to a psychologist for a comprehensive assessment. And this will include a developmental history that we would take with that person and their family. We would also use standardised assessment tools um, that where another a number of people in that individual's life will fill out these tools so we can get different perspectives. There's also clinician observation, self-report from the individual person, and in some cases we will do a cognitive assessment 
to get a real picture of that individual's cognitive profile because often neurodivergent people show a lot of differences in their uh, cognitive profiles. Mm. So is it unusual for a child to get a diagnosis without having that completed? Because I certainly know of some little ones that have been to a paediatrician and received a diagnosis without that assessment being completed. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's not unusual at all. Um, generally, if I'm doing a comprehensive assessment, I want a second perspective from a psychiatrist or a paediatrician. Mm-hmm. But often um, parents will go to their trusted paediatrician and they'll get that assessment done there with them. And this assessment might not be as comprehensive, but it's definitely still valid. I think the there can be flaws in that, in that the paediatrician might not have enough time to write up a report with recommendations or to spend time with the family on psychoeducation. Mm. Um, so that it can be different depending on the paediatrician. I've heard of wonderful stories of paediatricians giving lots of information to the families and then walking out feeling confident with the diagnosis. But there's also the flip side of that where that doesn't happen. Mm. The other confusion I've noticed is um, for families in regards to where do you start. So some families will go to a paediatrician and then go to a psychologist and back to a paediatrician. Some will go to a psychologist and then a paediatrician. And it just seems like the pathway can be very varied from one child to the next. Is that right? Yes, that's definitely correct. Um, I think it depends on who the child's linked in with first. So if they've got a family paediatrician, it might start there. If they've got a psychologist that they trust, it could start there. I think it really depends on who picks it up first and Mm. what the steps are following that. So as speech pathologists, if I did happen to have a query about a little one that I was working with, would it be best practice in the first instance to refer to a psychologist or would it be better to refer to a paediatrician? I would say if the child has a paediatrician, you definitely go there as courtesy straight away, but I would also recommend a referral to a psychologist as well. Okay. That said, it depends on the family's financials and what's in their capacity because a paediatrician assessment, you do get some rebates with Medicare, whereas a psychologist assessment, you might not get rebates. Um, and particularly if the child's not on NDIS, it could be quite a costly process. Mm-hmm. Mm, I was going to touch on that because it can be quite a privilege to get a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, there are those financial barriers and I'm not overly aware of public services that do provide a diagnosis, perhaps Kim's. Are you aware of any sort of public pathways for diagnosis? Through the hospitals sometimes, but I'm not fully aware of the process. Mm. And that's mainly just because from what I've heard, it's like a two plus year wait. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a real barrier at the moment, isn't it, in terms of um, access to diagnosis? Yep. And I also am aware that on the NDIS, currently ADHD is not, not a funded diagnosis. So even if they do go through a formal diagnosis, they don't necessarily get funding ongoing to support them. And I think a lot of people have been lobbying for that to change. Absolutely. I think it's considered a medical condition at the moment. And yes, I believe too, there's a lot of advocacy going on in that space um, to broaden that out a little bit and for people to realise that medication doesn't cure ADHD, which I guess that definition through NDIS would suggest. Now, speech pathology involved in the assessment has not 
traditionally been something that has happened. So, Jen, I'm going to hand it over to you because I'm really interested in your thoughts on what our speech pathology role might be in this diagnostic process. Thanks, Annika. So I think what's really interesting is although the DSM-5 criteria doesn't have any symptoms that, you know, directly link to our scope, there are things that we can look out for and that we often do see as evidence of a child who might have ADHD. Um, Unlike, I guess, a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, where the DSM-5 will state, you know, whether or not the diagnosis is accompanied with or without language impairment, I do think um, looking forward that the DSM-5 will potentially have a language component in it in the future because there are some really well-researched language markers for children who have ADHD and deficits in oral language skills and expressive language skills particularly. Um, So I guess for clinicians, though, entering this scope, it kind of goes back to when we all went to uni and we really didn't study autism or ADHD. I felt like we um, did a lot of speech sound disorders, um, a lot of holistic kind of care, but we didn't actually zoom in on neurodivergence. So I think this area, as you said in the intro, it's just booming. And as clinicians, we now know about it. So if we if we know about it, we can um, we can try and do better and do better by, by our clients. I think personally and professionally, I've really been trying to seek a better understanding of it because what I'm seeing clinically is that a lot of children will get the diagnosis of ADHD prior to an autism diagnosis, or sometimes what I'll also see is there'll be a child who I've done a language assessment on and I'm still really puzzled as to their presentation. Um, Perhaps there's a few uh, pragmatic red flags, um, but I'm not seeing all the traits of autism. So that's when I start to go, well, what else could this be? And does this child meet the criteria for maybe ADHD? And definitely I would refer back to a paediatrician and then try and include a psychologist. I think what's been pressing a lot of my clients at the moment are wait lists, and that is largely impacting on what what they do first. It's like, well, what can they get into first? Another thing that I'd like to point out is that ADHD is one of the most common comorbid diagnoses for children with an expressive language disorder. I think there's a lot of knowledge around the hyperactive Um, an impulsivity ADHD type, but there's not so much on the inattentive type. And that's where speech is, particularly with girls, we can be looking for those flags in in language assessments. Um, I know I met a child and the mother was actually a psychologist and he was having some pragmatic issues. And I did the language assessment and all of his expressive language subtests, he scored really low. Um, and upon discussion with the paediatrician, we felt that he would meet criteria for that inattentive because I had seen that consistently um, in the expressive subtests, he'd, he'd scored quite low. Mm-hmm. Um So could I pin you down a little bit more, if that's okay, because I love specifics. Mm -hmm. Um, What particular things are you looking for, let's just say, in a clinic room? So you're not necessarily doing a standardised assessment, but in a clinic room, what kind of things might you notice in this little one in front of you that might make you think, ah, okay, maybe this is where my clinical decision-making is headed? 
Yeah, so for the inattentive type, um, I would be really looking for, they might have word finding difficulties, so they might use lots of non-specific language, they might seem like they're elsewhere or that they're taking really long amounts of, you know, long processing time. Um, They might find it hard to kind of organise themselves during activities. So, you know, if you present them with a worksheet and they've got to cut and paste and read instructions, they might find that really overwhelming. Um, So you might see some executive functioning deficits in terms of their organisational capacity. Um, Pragmatically, you might see... um, They might be talking lots and be very impulsive in their conversations or they might be very long-winded in how they talk about a particular topic or, like I said, they could be really vague as well and not seem to be, um, you know, communicating in a reciprocal fashion in that natural timing so their prosody in the communication is really uh, interrupted. Um, Typically, I think with the hyperactive type, you we know those kids who can't sit still and who are fidgeting and they're bouncing off the walls and they just seem like they've got a million screens on in their brain at once and you just can't get them to focus on the one activity. The inattentive type doesn't look like that. The child is often sitting there um, and sitting, you know, still and they appear to be listening, but they're not responding as we would as we would hope they would respond. And I also find them a little tricky, um, the kids that are presenting with inattention, in that sometimes in a one-to-one adult situation, you sometimes can't even pull out some of that stuff. And it's not until you even observe them in a classroom where you're like, ah, okay, that's where I can see where some of this stuff's um, challenging for that little one. They seem to, perhaps it is the masking that you spoke about before, Lani, in our little girls, that in that... um, one-to-one clinician-child interaction, I don't know, sometimes they don't present with the significant challenges that Mm. you notice once you see them in their naturalistic environments. And and I think, Annika, to add to that, when they're in the classroom environment, they're, they're multitasking a lot more than in the clinic room. So they're processing their environment, they're having to engage in social interactions, they're having to do their learning or academic work, which we know can often be a real challenge for them. So when you see all of that thrown into a melting pot, you get a child who's just really overwhelmed and not and not coping. Mm, absolutely. All right, if we look at standardised assessment then, Jen, so you've just mm-hmm. touched on, you know, perhaps you do your cell five and on, with some kids you're noticing some lower scores in their expressive subtests. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you're noticing around standardised assessment profiles that might... Yes make you think, ah, is ADHD um, a diagnosis for this little one? Well, something that I do that I find that's really clinically helpful when I'm doing assessments is I'll always make notes on the side of assessments as to their response time, you know, if they asked for repetition of certain certain test items. So something that you may see is that they do take a really long time to process the question. Um, and to formulate an answer, they might also ask for repetition, or you might see them just saying, I don't know, even though you believe that they do have the ability to answer that, you might see them defaulting to that, I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, certainly, if we if we kind of think about the self, I know there's many other assessments out there, 
The self is really good because it does have some visual supports, so some visually assisted subtests. And what you will see with children is when that visual, when the visual material is taken away, you might see their ability decreases in in responding correctly. Um, formulated sentences, um, you know, they might experience that word finding difficulties or not be able to um, multitask in using the picture and using the word. Or they might use, especially when it gets to the two words, they might just use one of the words and not both of them because they're just not quite sure how to link them together. I guess understanding spoken paragraphs, they're attending to a large amount of information that they need to hold um, and work when responding to questions. So you might see that that's, that's an area of, of, of difficulty. Um, I find that I find that subtest really helpful, actually, with these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, not not with all of them, but it is definitely um, a subtest that I find obviously relies on some working memory. And we know that mm-hmm. kids with ADHD um, typically have some challenges with working memory. And I do find that sometimes that's the one subtest that they seem to have performed lower than the others. And I'm often quite curious about that. Um, Obviously, recalling sentences has a memory component, but it's not quite so much working memory. Um, That's another one too, that I'm sometimes interested in if it is incongruent with everything else, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess recalling sentences comes into that express, that core expressive, like, Mm. you know, core expressive competence score. Um, So, Yes, definitely recalling sentences. I like to think about functionally with the tests, how would that then look in a school or a classroom setting? So with with the understanding spoken paragraphs, that's going to be happening all the time in the classroom. The child's going to be saying saying a large, you know, large chunk of information to the children and then asking them questions and asking them to recall facts and inference and predict. So that one is particularly a functional um, subtests mm. that, that we do. Mm, absolutely. Now I'm going to throw it back to you, Lani, if I can. And um, we know that ADHD is part of this neurodivergent spectrum. And I certainly know as a clinician, I've very much dabbled in the question of how does ADHD and ASD overlap? Do they overlap? Where do they overlap? Um, and I'm just really curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I guess there is a fair bit of overlap between them. So for ADHDers who later receive a diagnosis of autism, the estimates are around 20 to 50%. For autistics who present with co-occurring ADHD, the current estimates are around 40%. However, some studies indicate up to 80%. So there is a lot of crossover. Um, Yeah, and I think you know, I think the amount of crossover there is is really important to recognise because realistically when we're assessing for autism or for ADHD, we should really be screening for the other. And I guess in a speech pathologist context, if you've got clients who are autistic, it's something to keep an open mind about and vice versa. Mm, Absolutely. They're huge numbers, huge numbers, aren't they? Yes. I could definitely see that when children often come in and you get the case history form, it's so common, isn't it, to see, you know, diagnosis, ASD, you know, ADHD, PDA. There's just a list of all these abbreviations. We're now seeing that more more and more common, aren't we? 
Mm. But there is also, as you say, though, that group of people that don't have both diagnoses, which complicates the decision-making, I think, to some extent. So a question that I've often grappled with, um, Lani, is in ADHD, we know that hyperfocus is something that is commonly um, seen as, a, I guess, a symptom of ADHD. How do you see that as different from perhaps a restricted or a narrowed interest in ASD? Sure. Um, so hyperfocus is one of those really special talents that ADHDers have, one of their awesome strengths. It's an ability to sustain attention on an activity that motivates you for long periods of time. So when someone is hyperfocusing, they're likely to be unaware of the world around them and not likely to be distracted by an external stimuli. In contrast, a narrowed interest is also, which is also known as a special interest, is one of those traits of autism where that person might spend hours upon hours engaging in that activity, talking about activity, um, researching that activity. It's it's something that they make kind of their whole world. So, for example, like kids are often into the game Fortnite. And for someone who has that special narrowed interest, they will likely want to play it for hours They'll watch YouTube videos of people playing Fortnite, uh, research the updates, talk to friends about it, um, and they might might show reduced interest in talking about other topics that other people find interesting if it doesn't align with theirs. Now, there's a crossover here, particularly when a person can hyper-focus and they have a special interest that you often will see that one interest being focused on for hours and hours and days and days. But for an ADHD or without a specific special interest, they will hyperfocus, but they'll do it on a range of activities. So they're likely to get bored of one and then they'll pick up another one and they'll hyperfocus on that for the day, but then they might get bored of that and then rotate to the next one. So that's where you can kind of see the difference between whether someone's hyperfocused on their own or hyperfocused on a specific special interest. Oh, that is a great explanation. Thank you. That was awesome. I'm also wondering, Lani, and we've sort of touched on a little bit around these um, pragmatic and social communication deficits that someone with ADHD might have. How do you think the social communication style that um, as somebody with ADHD might use, how does that actually impact their ability to interact with neurotypical people? Yeah. Um, So there is often this breakdown in communication between neurotypical individuals and neurodivergent individuals due to that difference in communication style. So previously, there's been this responsibility that's been placed on that neurodivergent individual to accommodate and change their communication style to fit the expectation of that neurotypical world that we live in. But more recently, there's seen theories that have been developed to explain this breakdown of communication, and that's known as the double empathy problem. So this theory suggests that two people with two different experiences of the world may struggle to empathize with each other and understand each other's communication style. So it's a two-way issue, and therefore I believe that both people need to find a way to understand and accommodate each other's needs. 
So I guess an example of that might be an ADHDer might flit from topic to topic to topic and jump all around or like they might just lose focus in that conversation because they get distracted by the bird that's chirping over there. Um, And their neurotypical friend who's talking with them might actually just take offense and think, oh, they're not actually interested in what I have to say which is not necessarily true. It's just how their ADHD brain works. So the double empathy approach suggests that both individuals are responsible here for making the effort to empathize and understand the other person's point of view rather than maybe making assumptions based on the ADHD as different communication style. Mm, that is so interesting. And it actually makes me think about school a little bit. It makes me think about the experience of someone with ADHD with teachers, um, which particularly kids that have a combined or a hyperactive diagnosis, um, school can be a very, very challenging place. And I could, um, I'm just wondering, yeah, what your thoughts are in regards to teachers, because part of that, I think, is um, that double empathy problem really playing out in the school, because perhaps teachers are just not understanding some of these I don't know, social interaction styles or things that these kids are doing. Yeah, I think it's I think it's across everything really. Like this is a really new kind of uh, area that's been looked into and a new kind of perspective um, on neurodivergent individuals. Um, but I think, yeah, previously the expectations were placed on, yeah, the teachers would place expectations on the child to perform how they're supposed to perform in that social interaction and, Um, They were seen as maybe the naughty child or rude, but realistically, um, I think it's up to teachers to learn more about neurodivergent communication styles and also encourage their students to be more accepting of differences and to see things from different perspectives because the more open we can be and the more accepting we can be, the better that we're going to be able to communicate with each other. Now, Jen, I know you've touched on quite a few um, oral language and pragmatic language issues. Is there any others that perhaps we haven't mentioned or even some written language type um, Mm. challenges that someone with ADHD might present with? Yeah, definitely. So oral language, we may see a deficit um, or a difficulty with and expressive language, but written language, we know that that's perhaps one of the hardest things we do with our brains Um, and so we can really see that I've been doing a bit of a deep dive into a number of journal articles and really looking and trying to understand the research Uh, and there's quite a lot out there actually in the domain of um, ADHDers and written language there's a lot out there and I'm more than happy to kind of share the research articles I've been reading Um, but one of the one of the articles uh showed that ADHD children may encounter um, severe difficulties in expressive writing that are not due to differences in knowledges about how to write. So they understand the concept of writing, they understand the structure, the framework, um, how to how to put together a sentence. But when it comes to the crunch, um, they might be okay in doing one sentence, but if you ask them to write a whole paragraph, you might see the fatigue and the wheels start to fall off. Um, that's And that's not because um, of anything else other than possibly the, the deficits in executive functioning and organisation. We do know also that um, 
would say probably 50, 50% of children with ADHD have a comorbid oral language deficit. But on top of that, 20 to 60% of children with ADHD have one or more learning disabilities or language problems. So just like how Lani was saying, you know, uh, ASD and ADHD, they might often go hand in hand. Now we're starting to see that expressive language delay and ADHD go together and so do specific learning impairments as well. So as clinicians, we just have to start peeling back all those layers. And for children who might have those language difficulties, we might then start to go and look at their academic progress, I guess, and see if there's any other missed red flags in there as well. Um, In terms of pragmatic issues, which I know we've already covered, um, but a lot of studies have also really found that children often present with um, traits such as excessive talking, providing insufficient information upon responding, really poor turn-taking skills um, and demonstrated difficulty maintaining topics and staying on task. So they're just some of the research traits that have started to be highlighted. Fantastic. And I know you did mention executive function there, and I'm going to throw it back to you, Lani, because um, I do believe that executive function difficulties um, are sometimes seen as the core deficit in ADHD. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I have um, seen that before. Um, How is executive function impacted in ADHD? Sure. So just I'll describe executive functioning quickly first, just so I'll give it a bit of an overview. Um, So executive functioning skills, um, I guess they impact an individual's ability to flexibly and efficiently solve problems and react to their environment. So it involves the integration of self-control, self-monitoring, emotional regulation, planning and prioritizing, task initiation, organization, attention, and working memory. And all of those systems work together. But say, for instance, one of those systems isn't working as well, like that child is really anxious, that can all go out the window. Um, But yeah, I guess executive functioning uh, is definitely impacted in ADHDers. Um, I really like, I listen to, I don't know if you've listened to the Neurodivergent Women podcast, um, but it's it's really fantastic. It's run by two psychologists, um, Michelle Livock and Monique Michelson. And in the podcast, they used a really great metaphor to describe executive functioning. And I use it with my families now, but they they describe executive functioning as like the brain's admin team. So that admin team manages information by organizing, prioritizing, ignoring distractions and breaking down tasks into subcomponents. And they use this metaphor to describe the ADHD brain like an under-resourced admin team with an overflowing desk space in the brain. So ADHDers often have busy and creative minds with hundreds of ideas going all at once and therefore sorting out that desk and sorting out that information and what drawers it needs to go into can be really tricky. And often that stuff just falls off the desk and goes straight into the bin. And that's where we see those difficulties following instructions, forgetfulness, because the brain is just so busy and it's got so much going on. And I think that really ties into what you were saying before, Jen, um, with the handwriting and the expressive writing in that there's just so much information that verbally they can spit it out. But when it comes to writing and organizing in the order that they want it written, it's the information's gone by the time they've handwritten it out. 
So we really do see it a lot in ADHDers, but it's different for each individual. And my understanding, Lani, is that executive functioning challenges can be compensated for, but not necessarily trained out of. That's such a bad way of phrasing it, but I hope you know what I mean. I know what you well, mean, yep. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? What's your thoughts on that? Yes, definitely compensated for. Um That said, though, I mean, working memory can definitely be improved in certain ways with um, using certain mnemonic strategies and repetition. There's definitely um, ways to improve your working memory slightly. Um, And same with, I guess, focus and attention. Um, That's part of that executive functioning system. Um, Physical activity, movement, there's a range of different things that can increase dopamine levels in the brain and help help with that attention. So there's definitely some strategies out there for it, but in general, it's compensatory strategies. Mm, Absolutely. Now, another sort of condition, I suppose, that is starting to get a bit of traction, and I've certainly um, read about this and started hearing about it a little bit more, probably this year, to be honest, is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And it's often linked specifically to ADHD, although I'm not sure if it is something that other people can experience as well. But I'm just wondering if you could touch on, Lani, what rejection sensitivity dysphoria actually is and how it would relate to someone with ADHD. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's growing. I'm hearing about it all the time and I'm starting to see it in my kids now too, which is sad, but it's good that we also are starting to recognize it too. Um, So rejection sensitivity is a strong emotional reaction or pain that is triggered by the perception that an individual has been rejected or criticized by important people in their life. It can also be a response to not meeting their own standards too. So if that child has high standards or that person has high standards for themselves, they can feel that sense of rejection, just not meeting those. Um, It's actually estimated, research shows that 50 to 60% of ADHDers experience rejection by their peers in early childhood. And this study was a bit of an older study, so I'm sure there's actually, it's probably higher. Um, And I think that this leads to self-doubt and self-blame and a negative perception of oneself. So that individual may blame themselves for negative consequences or interactions that are actually unrelated to their behavior because of that past rejection, that ongoing rejection. Mm. Does it feed into people pleasing? Because um, a lot of people with ADHD are quite strong people pleasers. (laughs) Does it feed into that a little bit in terms of if I people please, I can avoid feeling rejected and I don't just mean people pleasing by saying yes I mean you know some extreme examples of that oh yeah I I would say so that that masking and that forwarding that we see that people pleasing kind of response would be increased in these uh, these children and even all the way up to adulthood it's a Mm -hmm. way to kind of avoid that rejection avoid that stress trigger and people pleasing and masking is seen as part of that stress response so Mm -hmm. that is probably come out of that constant rejection that that would have felt that person would have felt in childhood Mm, it's very interesting and I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more about it as um, we start to understand it a little bit more that's for sure now just as we're sort of winding up Jen I'm just wondering if you could give speech pathologists a couple of I don't know key take-home messages in regards to working with someone with ADHD what would you what would you say 
Mm, I think something I'm now being really conscious of is using neuroaffirming language. Um, just as we've touched on with the rejection sensitivity, we now really want to boost their their confidence and their vision of themselves and who they are and that they do actually have superpowers as well as difficulties, but the normal person has difficulties too. So I think really supporting the child's perception of themselves um, and why they're coming to see us. I think some really basic strategies would be um, using using simple visual supports, having a really clear working space with them. So if you're working on the floor, up at a table, not not having all the activities out, having it nice and clean, which I know a lot of speeches are, are good at that and very organised themselves. Tactile prompts can also be really help, helpful in keeping them in the present. I know I'm really lucky I've got my therapy dog, Lincoln, who is often with me. So he is really good at keeping them present and keeping them regulated. So, you know, if we're trying to get um, maximal cognitive function out of someone, regulation is right at the base of our pyramid. So anything we can do to regulate them is is going to support their, their engagement with us. Um, some simple things might be also teaching them uh, language around if they need if they need something to be uh, repeated again and that it's okay for them to say, I just need a break or um, I didn't quite understand that, can you can you tell me it again? So giving them um, the opportunity to signal for non-comprehension and, and normalising that that's okay um, because we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to add, um, we don't want to make it worse, I guess. Um, another simple thing, offering extended time in conversation so again, normalising that it's okay for their communication style to be different to a to a neurotypical person who talks and often we talk over the top of each other. But for them, it's okay to have some pauses and some space and some quiet time during conversation. Um, probably the last one I'd give is pausing often and chunking language into shorter segments. So not placing that demand on them to listen to a whole you know, a whole narrative, kind of chunking it up for them and giving them opportunity to, um, you know, have a look at what other screens are on and then getting them to refocus back in. And I'm so glad that you raised your lovely therapy dog, Lincoln, in that little answer too, Jen. And Lani, I know that you also um, have a therapy dog that you work with. I'm just wondering whether maybe um, either of you could just touch on um, the benefits that you see of having a therapy dog when you are working with somebody with ADHD? Yeah. Um, yes, I love it. It's the, it's the best part about my day, having my therapy dog Mako with me. Um, but yeah, they can be used in so many ways and I'm sure Jed will add to this afterwards. But um, in my sessions, even just helping a child understand how their brain and their body works and using, their ther using the therapy dog to explain that. Um, I love the book, All Dogs Have ADHD. That's a great one if anyone <laughs> wants to get a book. Um, and I read that with my kids and then I link it to Mako and then I link it to them. And if they're generally, they're coming to see me because they love dogs. So they have this interest that brings a sense of self-confidence too. Um, but yeah, having having a therapy dog is fantastic for developing executive functioning skills by planning out and organizing activities, or even just for self-regulation, like Jen was mentioning before, just to regulate a child so that they can maintain focus and attention for the session. Hmm. 
I think many children, the research will back it up over and over again, but they find it much easier to interact and communicate when a therapy dog is present. As soon as you're in a presence of a therapy dog, if you enjoy dogs, you get this surge of oxytocin going, this big rush that goes through your body. And when that happens, it means that you feel a sense of of calm and ease and that can open up these neural pathways and allow you to be more social. So they actually have seen that um, children who are neurodiverse will have this social lubricant effect when they're in the presence of a dog. They'll be more likely to be pro-social, display eye contact, initiate conversations. They'll be more likely to stay in the conversation than leave. Um, I know that with Lincoln, he has just completely changed my clinical practice and, you know, I'm sure it's going to keep changing and evolving. Um, But I tell a lot of stories through Lincoln And because Lincoln doesn't talk back, the child almost feels like they've got an ally, they've got a friend, a non-judgmental friend who just accepts them for who they are um, and loves them. So they start to build this really nice relationship together. So that means that I can then be the teacher and then they can kind of work with Lincoln as almost as like a peer and we can go through a range of exercises and activities helping them with their goals. Oh, it's it like magic. So great. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, and I do know I'm going to touch on your um, Speech Pathology Australia face-to-face event in a minute because I know your lovely dogs are coming along with you to that. But just one last question, if I may, Lani, before we move on to that. Um, I am aware that the Australian ADHD Professional Association has some evidence-based practice guidelines that are in the process, I believe, of being finalised. Um, and I believe they're going to be released perhaps later this year. I'm not quite sure but I think they're really important for clinicians to be aware of this and I'm just wondering if you could let us know what you know about these guidelines. Yeah um, I can't wait it's going to be fantastic. Um, I think it will make our practices more evidence-based. We will have a better understanding of key assessment processes, where to refer, um, what are the key, I guess, uh, evidence-based techniques to use in our sessions. So I think when they come out, it'll be really helpful for all clinicians, not just psychologists, but all clinicians to have a look at those and make sure we're in line with what the evidence and the research is showing. Because I think sometimes there's there's like therapies or practices out there that are probably not evidence-based and it's not to say they're not effective, but the more um, up-to-date research that we can be involved in, the better. Mm, So watch this space, everybody. I think they'll be super, super helpful when they are released, that's for sure. All right. So you guys do have the Speech Pathology Australia face-to-face event in October. It is in Melbourne, so it's very exciting to be back to -to face-to-face. And I guess, unfortunately, it'll just be our Victorian listeners um, that would be interested in this. But I'm just wondering, Jen, if you could tell us a little bit about what we could expect from your Mm face-to-face workshop later in the year. Yeah, so it's really exciting because it is face-to-face. And as you mentioned, it's our first one back, you know, back face-to-face after COVID. Therapy dogs will be there all geared up and in their jackets. But we've got, um, so Lani and myself will be there alongside psychologists Kristen Rogers and Glenn Helmet, And we've also got an audiologist, Jude Harper, who will be coming along. So it's a really nice multidisciplinary look at ADHD you know, what it is. We're going to go through some personal experiences of, you know, perhaps clients um, and professionals and parents.
parents who have gone through the ADHD diagnosis and what it looks like actually living with it. Um, we'll go through over-assessment, auditory processing at ADHD, look at some in-clinic interventions um, with what the psychologist would actually do, and then I would like to go through some of my interventions that I would do with a child with ADHD. Um, then we'll look at some school interventions and go over recommendations as well. So it's going to be a jam-packed workshop. That sounds uh, amazing, though. Sounds yeah. so so. <laughs> great that's awesome and for people listening uh, keep an eye out on the speech pathology australia learning hub um, i believe uh, registrations will be open for this uh, workshop shortly so keep an eye out on the learning hub for all the details um, an enormous thank you to you both it's such a huge topic and there's so so many things that we didn't touch on that are just beyond the scope of a podcast for adhd such as medication and adhd coaches and a whole range of other things but they're just beyond the scope of our podcast today but i just wanted to say a massive massive um, thank you to you both that's just been a really fascinating chat thank you thanks for having us it's been fantastic Thanks for having us, Annika. We can't wait to see lots of people, lots of faces in October. Absolutely. And thank you so much for tuning in. Have a fantastic week and we will be back with another conversation next Wednesday. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.